today we'll be discussing sports and circadian rhythms. And first, I think it's important for us to recognize um, athletic performance and the implications of it and what it actually means. So athletes at the top level, we're talking about Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, Usain Bolt, um, Ronaldo, Messi, all these big names. Um, they're always competing to get the extra 1% physiological advantage. Um, so for the, for the normal sports player, um, these 1% aren't as important. But when you're competing at such a high level, all these 1% add up. So today's, I think, um, topic of discussion focuses on um, is circadian rhythm important enough for athletes to be recognizing it as an influencing factor on their performance and their ability to reach peak performance. Um, and with such high monetary value stakes nowadays on sports globally, um, for marketing companies and for athletes, I think there's massive implications um, of every edge they can gain. And as we'll discuss in this show, circadian rhythm seems to be a massive factor in that. What do you guys think? Royan, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I think, uh, so have you hit the nail on the head that these 1% margins are basically the difference between, you know, a gold or silver medal or basically not even showing up in the race. Um, when you hear, hit a certain uh, level of athletic performance, you know, one second or uh, mm. one millisecond can matter. Um, I think the part I would add is that um, I do think there's something that, you know, each of us can learn, even though we're not Olympic athletes or World Cup athletes or professional athletes um, from this discussion. And um, that's the part I'm interested in, you know, even though I'm not trying to win a gold medal um, or a silver medal, silver medal in any particular race, um, I, I do want to be able to learn tips and insights that I can apply to my own life, um, you know. Um, I don't need uh, five or 7% body fat uh, to be happy and successful, but um, I don't want to develop uh, pre-diabetes or diabetes. And so some of these lessons in terms of physiological optimization, I think can be adapted to the masses, including ourselves. Yeah, I, I got to agree with both of you. I mean, um, taking it from like a, a high level perspective, like the amount of like effort that goes into like you know finding ways to sort of uh you know beat beat the competition whether it's performance enhancing drugs whether it's you know testing out the latest greatest technologies in terms of athletic you know performance enhancement whatever it is like it's to me it's it's very ironic that it could ultimately come down to the fact that like the most essential thing and the most simple thing is really one of the most effective things in terms of performance. And that's just getting enough sleep and managing the body clock. And um, I think uh, this is going to be an awesome show because uh, this, this uh, study that we're going to dive into in just a bit, uh, it really nails like, uh, you know, the point in and um, uh, do, should we dive into that so far already or should we kind of discuss a bit more? Cause I think there's like so well, much good stuff in this. Yeah, I think before we start, let me just roll off a few statistics that I was actually quite um, kind of astonished by. Um, so what I found was that um, they did a study which showed west to east travel across six time zones um, resulted in about a 10% de decrease in athletic performance. So I mean, that's quite, that's an estimate because quite, 
quantified. We can't get that exact. But just just for some more specific um, specific numbers, for a 270 meter sprint, um, performance fell by about eight to 12 percent. For a 3k run, it was about eight percent, and for muscle strength, it ranged from about five to 11 percent. So um, I think these statistics show how we talk. We're talking not even one percent here. We're talking close to 10 percent. Um, and that, that impact, even even as Royan pointed out, for, for all of us, if we're even playing friendly, you know, tennis, swimming, um, football, um, these changes can have a massive impact. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. They, they, I think the key the key there is to to realize that these these things can accumulate over time, right? So even if it's um, if it's just on a daily level, you, you don't realize it. It's, it's so incremental and so, uh, you know, infinitesimal. You just don't even know that these things are happening uh, to your biology, to your, to your body. The point is that it can accumulate over time, right? And, and we're really in this era of chronic disease. Um, my, my favorite analogy for this, um, which is this controversial experiment you guys might have heard about, which is, um, you know, they take uh, frogs and put them in boiling water and, you know, they jump out, right? The frogs yeah. in boiling water and they get out within milliseconds. Uh, they save their own lives by jumping out of the water. But if you take the same frog and you put it in lukewarm water and slowly boil it over time, it sits in there and it stays until it boils over and dies, right? Uh, so it's a controversial study, which obviously hasn't been uh, repeated uh, in the modern era for obvious ethical reasons. But um, whether or not it's true and repeatable, it, it teaches us an important lesson. Uh, the metaphor is there that we're really living in an era of chronic disease. So even something as subtle as the air we breathe might be impacting our overall health. But what about these circadian impacts that haven't even really been uh, monitored or measured or, or quantified? You know, so how you were saying, a lot of these things are very difficult to quantify. Um, so what we're really trying to do is kind of tear open a new realm of science that's really just emerging now and showing like, look, you know, here's the tangible effects. Here's the canary in the coal mine, the uh, coal mine in a positive way, right? With these elite right. athletes and how it impacts their performance. But what does that mean for us? The rest of us in the coal mine that aren't on the extreme side of this, but are feeling it at the more moderate, mild levels, but every day for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I mean, if you look, if you look at a weightlifter. Say if you've traveled and you've you've come and, and you're not hitting the numbers. I mean, a lot of people get feel low low in mood if they're not performing as well as they used to, um, and they start thinking of reasons. But if you're not aware of this physiological impact of the jet lag or circadian rhythm shift, um, it could just um, be due to that when you'll be looking for different reasons and that could be keeping you down. So um, I agree with you. Um, I think identifying uh, the science behind physiology and circadian rhythms is very important to all of us. Agreed. And I think that's what makes uh, the this this new emerging science of like you know managing the circadian rhythm and the bottom the body clock so important is that it touches on everything from our physiology, our psychology, our athletic performance, our social performance. Um, you know your work life balance. I think all of it's sort of tied together somehow and uh, the one common denominator in all of it is that you typically notice that with 
poorly managed body clocks that you're seeing poor results on all those different levels or at least not results that are good enough where they should be and i think it's definitely a a long-term goal i believe of o waves and of uh, science in general to be able to provide you know quantitative objective data that can you know clearly demonstrate that you know this is a really important thing and that maybe we've been overlooking it for a little bit too long but um, that's what makes it so awesome that we do what we do is that we can provide insight on uh, such an easy thing it's such an easy change for most people to make versus you know some of the other things when it comes to diet or lifestyle nutrition uh, you know work habits those things are a lot more difficult to change but um, I think it's awesome that you could just tell somebody, you know, like, look at all these amazing benefits that come from just being a little bit more on top of that body clock, making sure that you're getting your seven to nine hours. And, um, yeah, it's, I think, uh, we're at about, you know, 10 minutes in and, um, this study is going to be a very good example of that. Uh, the study that we're going to focus on is the Stanford university study, just for listeners to know exactly that want to back reference in case you guys want to read it. It's not too long. It's really actually a really great read. It's called Circadian Rhythms and Enhanced Athletic Performance in the National Football League. And this study primarily focused on the performance of East Coast teams versus West Coast teams, uh, primarily when they played on Monday Night Football because of the primetime start that's normally later in the day rather than the 10 a.m. 1 a.m. normal start times. I believe like Monday night football is usually like around 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern and um, pretty massive, uh, you know, effects. I thought it was pretty awesome just from the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the objective quantifiable data point that I was making earlier that you could use wins and losses in this case to you know very clearly demonstrate that hey there's definitely a big difference here and um i was shocked i had no idea i would have saved me a lot of money on when it came to sports betting over the years if i would have known to, to, right, to yeah. bet, the, bet the right way <laughs> like, like, that, uh, like that back to the future episode right where biff gets the uh what is it the goodness book of records yeah yeah he gets the almanac he gets an almanac from like 2020 yeah and, uh, goes back in time and uh that's on all the winning teams. Yeah. If you walk away with anything from this podcast, don't bet <laughs> against the West Coast. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the reason why uh, I thought this was an important uh, article for us to, uh, you know, base our discussion on is because this actually, um, you know, was a hallmark study, right? So it was done by Stanford uh, University Sleep Disorders Clinic. It was published in, uh, you know, the journal, uh, academic journal sleep right which is obviously a well-regarded one in this category and i think the stanford sleep clinic was really one of the first uh to start studying sleep um in a you know academic uh meaningful way and so they have a lot of um of the pioneers in the space there right so this this was a study that really captured um everyone's attention um and i mean everyone i mean you know not just the national football league but uh, major league baseball um, you know, Olympic athletes, Olympic trainers. Um, it really just made everyone aware in a powerful way that there was this uh, hidden advantage um, that Harun, you had discussed, um, you know, with regard to this, the body clock, with regard to circadian rhythms um, that was ultimately quantified here in terms of uh, winning records for Monday night football games. And so what they found, um, really what uh, the take-home point is 
is that um, the West Coast teams were playing at a biologically advantaged time. They were playing around 6 p.m. Um, in terms of their internal body clocks, which uh, basically, you know, the, the evidence suggests that your body is optimized for uh, physical performance, for peak physical performance and late afternoon, uh, early evening, right? Um, and there's some evolutionary theories why that's the case, which we don't have to get into now, but um, are interesting. Uh, so the point being that the West Coast teams were playing at this in this optimal window while the East Coast teams were not. And not only were the East Coast teams not playing in their optimal uh, body clock window, they were playing at what would argue, be argued to be a suboptimal time, which is uh, late evening uh, and even close to midnight, right? Because it's a three-hour difference between, you know, West Coast of U.S. and East Coast. And uh, these guys are playing 9 p.m. to midnight is when the games usually end. Uh, imagine if there's overtime. And um, that's really when the um, body temperature starts to nother and your body's trying to shut down. Uh, so everything that would increase, uh, you know, uh, physical performance, uh, you know, like blood flow and, um, you know, muscle oxygenation, et cetera, is really hitting a dip at that point. Um, and that's why um, even beyond Vegas odds, and we know those guys care and are doing their homework with regard to which team should be winning, um, every Monday night, uh, uh, there's obviously a lot of money at stake. Um, they were missing this. And so that this obviously captured a lot of people's attention. Um, you know, there's million, billion dollar industries uh, on the line here, uh, quite literally. And um, now, um, since the study in 97, when it was published, it's still relevant um, because um, People are paying attention, and uh, I think the argument can be made that they should actually be paying more attention to this study and studies like this. Absolutely. I think the, uh, the stat that really sticks out to me the most, and I quote from the study, overall West Coast team records since 1970 are 4.4 points better than East Coast team records. However, when West Coast teams play East Coast teams during Monday night football games, West Coast team records are 27% better than East Coast teams. I mean, that's massive. Wow. You're talking more than 25% of the time. You know, that's that's a pretty big difference. It's just the league being decided on time, games are being played rather than ability, you're saying. Yeah. Um, which changes everything. <laughs> Um, it'd be interesting if they replicated this study for other sports in other countries as well, um, because they seem this is a very comprehensive study from um, my reading on it, and it seems like they they tried to rule out the effects of playing surface, um, home field advantages, and they used logistical regression data techniques to try and isolate the circadian rhythm. Um, disruption side of the study um, which makes it even more prominent because um, I think a lot of the listeners could be arguing that um, there could be other factors at play weather temperature um, but it seemed that they really tried to isolate this factor um, but my question from this study would be um, so obviously most athletes most humans um, as circadian rhythm show and as Royan mentioned, seem to perform best at that um, late afternoon period. However, because um, I'm quite interested in genetics, um, 
I have read that there are differing phenotypes, which kind of changes your circadian rhythm naturally slightly. Um, and how do you think that would have an impact? Because um, say people who are termed night owls, um, generally they feel a more alert later on in the day around, you know, they'd be performing best, say 7 p.m., 8 p.m. Would, would those athletes with those phenotypes be advantaged as well? I mean, would the study have to take that into account as well, do you think? I think, I think. Yes, there's... I think. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, Royan, please. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, basically, I was just going to make a couple points. Uh, one is, I think, yes, future versions of the study would include, uh, you know, some sort of uh, chronotyping, hopefully based on genetics, uh, before delving into, um, you know, overall impact of timing on performance. Um, it's just, um, it's hard to do that, especially on an athlete by athlete level. Right. So even the, the authors here mentioned that, you know, it would have been nice to do that, but it's just obviously um, a little bit harder. But that was kind of pre big data. And, you know, before um, this type yeah. of data analysis could be done so quickly. And so maybe I think the future version of the study uh, would start moving in that direction. The, the, just one more, right. Sorry. Just one more point I'd like to make is, um, you know, this whole concept of uh, differentiating night owls versus morning light, morning larks. Um, based on phenotype in the human species is, is very difficult. Um, it's, it's actually mostly um, theoretical at this point. And the big reason why is because um, there are so many cultural environmental influences at play. And um, so there's a, there's a circadian biologist from um, University of Colorado. Um, I want to say it's Robert Wright, um, who's, who's really a, a bright, um, you know, uh, bright guy. And he's one of the, uh, you know, I would say visionaries, uh, pioneers in the space, um, because one of the things he does is he takes his human subjects um, camping, right? So Colorado is known, known for having you know, sort of a great outdoors um, and a very active outdoors lifestyle. So he'll take people out of, um, you know, our modern environments and study them um, in natural conditions or more natural condi conditions, let's say. And there, all these self-described night owls immediately turn into morning larks within a week of being oh, out. Wow. So it really confounds, um, you know, that uh, sort of a, at least uh, user-based uh, phenotyping. Um, and so trying to determine, um, you know, if you're a night owl or morning lark or somewhere in between um, is very difficult in the modern yeah. era. Exactly. And a lot of it, as you said, probably habitual, um, probably because why did we not have night owls in the past? But now we do can just be, as we talked about in the past, technology keeping people awake and new habits forming. Um, so do, does our body adjust to these shifts? I mean, do some people, do, would you say some athletes physiologically, would they cope better than others? Uh, is, is there a variation between people naturally adjusting? Um, to the, the jet lag. I, I think well, the I think yeah. multiple factors probably play into like whether or not the the athlete or even like the individual like regular you know person like yourself or myself um, could acclimate faster or slower. I think uh, overall diet, nutrition, 
um, those things play like a key factor in like determining like how well are you going to be able to, uh, you know, acclimate to this new time zone. And for, for listeners that aren't as familiar with like the, the physiology and whatnot. Um, so like our systems are built where we have our sympathetic fight or flight system and then we have our parasympathetic rest and digest system and those are two systems that are constantly having to sort of do a yin and yang based off of uh how we uh you know make decisions um you know are you getting up at 11 o'clock at night right before midnight to go eat a snack or are you not are you staying asleep so that your body can rest and just completely like you know be in full recovery mode are you constantly anxious? Are you nervous? Are you turning on like this fight or flight system when you should be nice and relaxed because you're not meditating at night? Or maybe you're not doing simple exercises to sort of retrain that body clock and that circadian system. Um, I definitely feel that we're creatures of habit. And, um, you know, I hear it from my patients all the time and they sort of, uh, you know, present it with a very like dire sort of like, well, this is the way that I am. And so that's not going to work for me type deal where I strongly emphasize the fact that like, you know, we it's one decision at a time. It's one good decision at a time. Right. And if if you make one good decision that leads to another that leads to a bunch, suddenly you're living a different lifestyle. And I feel like that applies very much so when it comes to managing the body clock. And I feel like yeah, that's a big part of it. And, you know, that, that's a, probably a bigger discussion than what we're probably focusing on here. But I, I definitely feel that we have a lot of control. What do you guys think? Yes, it's applicable to the whole population. But for, if we just take this study in isolation, did they, did they do anything about this? Have they? Um, so if we're saying the time these games are being played is having such an effect, do you think, do we, do we have to almost biohack the sports coaches and like you mentioned, acclimatization, um, come, come for the game a few days before, um, change their meal times, increase and decrease light exposure, depending on the time of the game, um, trying melatonin supplements. So are we talking about, um, players or athletes kind of biohacking and adjusting and recognizing the circadian rhythm shifts and the time zone travel? Or is it something league should take into account and schedule games at yes. points with no unfair advantage? Yeah, that's what? happening, right? So, so the Golden State Warriors, right, who won the NBA championships, they had a sleep coach, dedicated sleep coaches, actually. Okay. And, and so ESPN was tracking that. So this, this knowledge, so this was, study was published in 97, but obviously the knowledge has increased. And we're kind of making the point again that, you know, elite athletes – People who get paid and where millions and billions of dollars are at play are paying careful attention to this. But I really think that there's implications for the rest of us, which was why I think these topics are still, you know, worth discussing for quote unquote the average person. Um, so ESPN now has a, I forgot the the what they call it, but like a sleep alert, um, and they actually have experts right who predict odds of nba teams winning games based on the schedule and their travel and the time zones um and they are accurate over 60 percent of the time right and so these things are still um playing a role in major uh you know major league sports um and actually so the reason for the season uh the reason why we're talking about this now is because world cup is going on um, and I don't know uh, how much internationally, you know, I know in the United States, it's, it's a big deal. And I, I know in Europe, uh, you know, they're very savvy about this too, especially given the Northern latitude. Yeah. 
but I think globally, um, I don't know um, if people are really paying attention to this on, you know, at least with regards to um, soccer, professional soccer. And um, I would, I would, based on this Monday night football study, um, I wonder how much it's impacting world cup results. I don't know. On that note, uh, I'm sure that the two of you guys, soccer fans like myself were aware uh, recently when uh, the Iranian national team played Portugal, uh, the Iranian fans were gathered, I guess, like hundreds, maybe thousands of them outside of Portugal's team hotel. And they were basically like using the Vuvuzelas and creating as much noise and racket as possible, specifically to keep Cristiano Ronaldo awake. And it worked because he actually came out and acknowledged that, like, yeah, I see what you're doing. And he made the sign that I'm trying to go to sleep and they didn't listen and they went the whole way through the night. Um, ultimately, yeah, I don't, that was classic. That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think the Ronians, the Ronians are onto it. <laughs> they know. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's quite substantial. This this study and what we've discussed. So yeah, in, in the World Cup, I know England. So I can talk from an English perspective. Um, I think England always try to uh, take these factors into account. They're one of the teams which um, are quite analytical when it comes to things like this. Uh, one of the reports, I think, one of our players. Um, or saying that it's struggling to sleep. That's where I think they probably are utilizing things like melatonin, etc., to adjust quicker. But um, England is one of the teams which is always very specific with temperature changes. They, they think about travel time, so they choose where to book their hotel so it's close to A and B or where their stadium is so it doesn't affect um, their circadian rhythms. Um, I, hope it, I hope it starts to show in the performance. But... Um, yeah, um, in the World Cup. So I think one thing we should make clear, obviously north to south travel doesn't have any effect. Is that, is that correct, guys? So it's more longitudinal? It's, it's, so, it's, so it's more, I think, west to east or east to west travel, mm -hmm. which seems to affect um, your circadian rhythm. Uh, is that correct, Royan? Well, um, okay. So, you know, um, it, it is going to get complicated, right? Because um, the answer is actually no um that that is the more uh clear um yeah, clearly differentiation right so basically when you're talking about uh circadian rhythms you're ultimately talking about um you know relationship to the sun so yeah. this is why you know northern latitudes for example have a much different experience uh with sunrise and sunset than anywhere on the equator Right, because in the equator you actually get yeah. pretty even halves, you know, generally throughout most of the year. Uh, but depending on your latitude, again, um, you might have sunrise happen, geez, at like you know two or three in the morning, or sunset happen, you know, almost around midnight. Right, so that's something famous. Uh, Scandinavia is famous for. Yeah. Um, and so. Exactly. Yeah, th these are all confounders. Um, not, not to. Uh, confuse things, but um, one one thing that came up with uh, on this study, which I'm still trying to wrap my mind around, is um, you know they they mentioned possible confounders, um, other explanations for the observed West Coast advantage demonstrated on Monday Night Football. Right, that's Table One of the study. Yeah, um, and so they kind of go through them here, and um, without getting us too far off track. One of the things that was listed was jet lag, and then they have in parentheses circadian rhythm disruption. Mm -hmm. And, mm, and yeah. the, re the reason why that 
you know, piqued my interest is because, um, you know, so have you had mentioned that, you know, one of the things that the English club does and which I think most professional fo football teams or excuse me, professional athletes in general by now mm. have gotten the message on jet lag, right? Like jet lag is, um, for the most widely part, recognized. Yeah. It's, and, and for the most part it's solved. I mean, you know, these sleep experts have that, those hacks, you know, quote unquote down. Um, you can you can see uh, anyone that's coached by a sleep expert can you know just glide through jet lag nowadays um, at a pretty impressive level. Um, but it seems like there's actually a separate role for the body clock still, and that's the part that's interesting. And I think this study uh, starts teasing apart, but at least I personally have to do more research on. Um, but basically, what that's saying is just showing up um, to you know, West Coast or East Coast a day or two before the game time doesn't mitigate this issue that they found with regards to the, the body, body clock. Yes. So in, irrespective of the time of day where we're going to perform worse um, than, say, if we played earlier mid-afternoon or... Um, so... Actually, this... actually, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So I think, I think this actually gets back to one of your earlier questions, which is how resilient is the body clock, right? I mean, can you just, if you show up and start living, right, at a different time zone, can, you know, how long does it take for you to really uh, entrain your body clock to that uh, new environment? Um, and if if overcoming jet lag doesn't get you there, then what does? Hmm. And I'm guessing um, some people are naturally um, better at it than others. Um, it's, this, it comes more naturally to them. It's easier for them. It has less of a effect on their bodies but for right. some people maybe right and and so what we know is that younger people are more resilient they're more adaptable exactly as you get, as you get older it becomes more difficult and what they found mm. um, in terms of uh aging the science of aging right one of the yeah. there's a there's a huge argument being made from very credible scientists at places like mit salk institute that one of the hallmarks of aging is the disruption lack of resilience of your body clock and that these things okay. stop stop playing a major role okay and everything starts um you know falling from there but you know everyone has their own theories as far as aging goes as you get older you do sleep earlier and you do wake up earlier don't you um that's a natural um signs of aging um but so are we saying sorry, sorry. well so i'm sorry just to complete that yeah. point you know really what happens is their their sleep wake cycle just gets diminished so you start okay you stop seeing amplitudes right and everything is just kind of gets squished out which is why the okay. the natural sleep at night just becomes kind of a mess because they're kind of half asleep during the day unfortunately right and half awake at night yeah. um, so, and so they don't really get the deep sleep that they need that they need to recover and rejuvenate so are we saying so maybe disrupting your circadian rhythm more could even accelerate aging i mean that could be one of the hypotheses investigated in the future uh, I think that's a very good point. it's being investigated now it's being investigated oh, wow. now that, that question that argument's already being made sorry sorry to interrupt. isn't that doesn't that have to do something with the uh, the telomere length aren't they identifying that like um with not enough rest that uh during like uh, cell mitosis and whatnot, that telomere length gets a little bit uh, degraded shorter, over yeah. time or shorter, and ultimately how the I guess it's a different conversation, but it's even factored into like neurodegenerative diseases that they're yeah, attributing. Exactly. So. I mean, longevity is the big thing in Silicon Valley right now as well, and circadian rhythms is one of the kind of I think niche parts of that. Um, okay, so 
Um, so we're saying so. So with this World Cup, for example, uh, Ronaldo is now 33. Um, four World Cups ago, he was you know 20, um, 1920. So would it be more difficult for him to um, adapt to shifts in his body clock now than it would have been in 2006? Well, um, that reminds us that, you know, we got to wrap up in 15 minutes so we can see Ronaldo lose to Uruguay. Um, I'm seeing <laughs> 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 Ronaldo. <laughs> Manchester United. <laughs> no, no, I, I, like, I like Ronaldo. It's just uh, my, my ex-girlfriend was from Portugal, so I had to throw some salt in that direction. But, uh, basically, um, you know, I think if you're Ronaldo or Tom Brady, right, who's I think 34, counting on 35, but just got out of a Super Bowl, um, and, you know, Ronaldo scored, like, pretty much, what, four out of five goals for Portugal. And yeah, um, when these guys have trainers who are adept at the science, and, and for me, that's one of the frustrating things about, you know, being from the traditional medical side, right, which is our knowledge of circadian rhythms is much less than professional sport trainers. It's very primitive. Because it's very... And these guys know because, you know, since 97, when this study came out and and, you know, around this, you know, so much science has been published with elite performance because, again, these are canary, canaries in the coal mines in the positive direction, right? Uh, circadian makes a difference between the winners and losers on this stage. Um, so, you know, getting back to the Ronaldo, he has trainers who, you know, he, there's a reason why, you know, Ronaldo was so susceptible to the Iranian fans keeping him up at night because they know how important that is for his routine, for his recovery. And I would say even his mindset, right? Because these yeah. athletes are so sensitive about those factors. Like they literally got in his mind and he didn't score a game. That was the only game he didn't score a goal. And exactly. even the announcers were, were commenting on that. Um, so, you know, the, the point is that when you have the right trainers and when you have the right knowledge and you implement that knowledge, I think you can keep a resilient body clock into your 30s, into your 40s, ultimately to your 60s and 70s. I think that's part of our mission you know, through these discussions, through the software that we're building, et cetera, is to exactly. keep our body clocks more resilient. Right? For the normal person. So, I mean, my question would be always, what can always do for me? So, so as a normal um, person, so will, would always be able to tell me when to play a friendly tennis match with my friend or when I might perform better or when to go for a swim? Um, can it help me organize my day like that? Well, and actually, so this gets into what we were talking about uh, even before we started the podcast, which is really what, um, you know, I think always needs to do is become sort of a digital version of whoever the heck Ronaldo's coach is, right? And you know, he doesn't, yeah. just, he doesn't just have one coach, you know, these guys have many, like, um, especially people like Ronaldo, right, where, you know, each one of his toes is worth a few million dollars. Yeah, so uh, that's a discount. So the point is, yeah, <laughs> right right that's that's because he's 33 it used to be 10 million dollars right? yeah depreciation uh, right <laughs> uh I, I hate to think how much my toes are worth oh god i think people would pay, pay to get rid of them um basically i think um you know where were we I, if we if always can become the digital version whether through voice commands or nudges or interactions um whatever the case may be um, that's where we provide the most service. And again, this knowledge is really, I think, um, at this at this point, it's just been 
almost unconsciously adopted by these uh, professional trainers. I don't think they're steeped in the science of circadian rhythms in the sense that they can comment on the amplitude and phase of their athletes' wavelengths, mm-hmm. right? They don't know what the tau is or what the, the periods are for the, yeah. um, you know, these different uh, parameters that would be relevant for circadian science. But because they're on the field, literally, you know, uh, they're, they have games on the line, they have careers on the line, they, they're just intuitively, it's like almost like grandmother's knowledge or wisdom coming through in these elite athletes. And somehow we have to quantify that, break it down into, uh, you know, scientific uh, bites that we can provide through the software. Yeah, absolutely. I think the more quantifiable objective data that could be obtained regarding the matter, the better. And I feel like they, especially in the world of professional sports, um, everyone's constantly looking for the competitive edge. And that even applies on the day-to-day level where a lot of times, you know, your your buddy looks at you and says, like, what's your secret, man, right? And a lot of the time, you know, there's people who don't necessarily want to tell their whole entire routine, right? Because maybe they've worked hard at it. But the fact that the study shows here, and it says, like, I quote, it says, present travel strategies employed by the NFL teams, four West Coast and nine East Coast teams surveyed demonstrate some use of circadian rhythm knowledge. West Coast teams now travel to the East Coast two days prior to game time, and most East Coast teams presently travel to the West Coast one day prior to game time. It goes to show, like, they know that there is a connection, and ultimately the only, you know, 100% quantifiable data that you could really use is did you win or lose and how often did you win and how often did you lose and are you coming from the east coast or the west coast and then comparing sleep times and i feel like that can even be done on an individual personalized basis in the sense of being able to use an app like o-waves putting in the information as far as how much sleep are you going for what types of goals are you going for are you trying to are we looking at performance here are you trying to like you know cut down on your mile time what is it and how much sleep are you getting and i think that if a user could do that for at least say like a couple months or a few months and then be able to look back and say like wow look at that when i managed my body clock i excelled so much more on all these levels and oh what do you know look now i lost weight now my bmi's down now my reps are up I feel like that right there is a big deal. And that's something that could be brought down more to like the, the, like we said, quote unquote, average person. That would be very motivating. And I think my conclusion from that would also be um, that that we've looked at performance, but I think we focused on obviously physiological performance. So um, your VO2 max, lung capacity, um, your heart's capacity to pump blood around the body, um, reaction times. So there is a single point in the day where it's going to be best. But I think we need to also in the next episode probably look at decision-making and psychological health that Royan touched on the mental side of things as well and how circadian rhythms is linked to that. So I think it leaves us nicely in a position to um, discuss the decision-making and mental side of the game. Agreed. Yeah, I thought, I thought uh, Harun, that was, I, I liked your point about, you know, kind of measuring wins and losses. And, you know, it's, it's easy for an Olympian to figure out if they won or lost, right? I mean, mm-hmm. either they crossed the line first or they didn't. Uh, but how do we measure wins and losses, right? I mean, is my goal in life just to have a normal BMI? Is that is that really how I'm going to measure my my wins? Um, you know, how how would you guys uh, rate a win or a loss? Like, let's say for today, how would you know if you won today? It's a it's a very it's a it's such a it's a broad question, right? It's so difficult because it's it's so personalized. I mean, I I think we all internally score things that went well and that didn't go well, and by the end of the day. Um, if more things went well, it's a positive day, but we don't have a quantifiable way 
of, of actually doing that. And if, if O-Waves could, you know, come up with a scoring system which could help us, um, I'm sure I'm sure you're developing that. I mean, it could it could make things a lot more objective for us. Yeah, I think I think this is um, you know again this is like a, a you know million billion trillion dollar question right which is uh, you know what matters. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know Clayton uh, Christensen is a you know famous uh, Harvard Business School professor who um, love the guy. He's the one, right. He, he's the one that identified or, or really coined uh, the phrase innovators dilemma right which is sort of the classic uh, story about why incumbent businesses eventually lose to disruptive startups. Um, but, you know, towards the end of his uh, sort of, uh, you know, he, uh, as he was getting older, he started really um, quite having, re really uh, wrapping his mind around this question about what matters. Um, and when he tells a story, it's about like going to his Harvard, you know, uh, class reunions and all these people who had these, you know, killer jobs and amazing wives and all these, you know, things going for them in their 20s and 30s, you know, he would see them at the, um, you know, whether it be 25 or 50 or 30 year reunion, and these guys were divorced, they were alone, they were, their kids didn't like them, you know, they had all these uh, problems. And so it really made him internalize the question of, you know, how you measure success. Um, and it's something that we at always um, are definitely, uh, you know, uh, so have, as you mentioned, thinking about um, in terms of what is the ultimate service to the user? I mean, do you really want to um, stick to the traditional health metrics, which we can, um, you know, blood pressure, weight, um, LDL, um, et cetera? Or is there an opportunity here to actually kind of... Uh, help define, redefine what matters. Um, the, the challenge we run into here in terms of, you know, kind of the brainstorm part of this, which, um, you know, maybe we can do is uh, ultimately this question seems very subjective, right? Which has come up uh, just now. And uh, the, the challenge is actually this, if it's subjective, that means that the user him or herself has to actually enter in like let's say just you know mood or happiness one through ten, and that requires daily input from the user, um, and so getting that sort of uh, outcome, that data point passively, is a is a challenge. Um, and what some companies are trying to do, um, people like Microsoft and obviously uh, anyone with a smartphone, so Apple, Google, is do uh, facial recognition, um, voice pattern recognition, and capture moods. Um, uh, passively, quantitatively, that way. Wow, that would, that would be so transformative because I think that that's what it's about. I saw Babylon's launch last week, and they were proving how an AI, uh, their AI system, can beat um, family medicine doctors in the UK. And part of their dashboard, I did see this 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 picture of of a face, and they'd analyze the mood. So I think you're right. You're on the right lines. I think capturing subjectively measuring moods in a more objective manner and people's feelings i think i think that's counts for a lot and that's what people feel we haven't been able to quantify that um so yeah yeah it's Brilliant. i don't know i, I think sorry I, no go ahead her and i don't uh, oh no i just i was just gonna say it seems like it's the the age the age old battle of like uh intertwining the quantifiable with the qualitative it's it's one of those things where uh you know 
the at the university where I work at, it's a naturopathic medical school. A lot of the students are very much geared towards qualitative descriptors in terms of grading and coming from more of like a sort of a, you know, Western medicine background myself, my chiropractic school was very much known as like a metapractor school. Um, it was one of those things where it's still a battle to get, you know, student interns to understand like there is a difference between quantifiable and qualitative, but there is also a relationship between the two where one definitely affects the other. And it's really learning to understand how to like use the data from both worlds to combine to ultimately put towards like specific metric categories or metrics that I guess we would have to survey enough enough of the population to see like to answer your question Roy on like what really does matter to you what are like the top five or top ten things that really matter to you whether it's like your mood or your health or your weight or your BMI or how many reps you did on the bench press you know like it's one of those things where I guess you know it will always be different to a certain degree individual to individual but I also think that for the, the vast majority there's probably a lot of commonalities and if we could identify those and be able to score those somehow and ultimately use either AI or use user input or maybe a combination of the two that's probably the best bet but then again I, you know with AI nowadays I'm sure the robots will figure something better out <laughs> what are your thoughts I thought that was a nice summary. I think we can end there and go watch Ronaldo. Perfect. That's yeah. Ronaldo. <laughs> no. Heck yeah. Alrighty, boys. I wonder what makes Ronaldo happy scoring a goal. <laughs> I think it's those dollar signs. It's... Dollar signs. <laughs> the commas, all the commas. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, guys. I think that was an awesome show. Um, I, I really like the idea of, you know, taking this conversation to now the psychosocial level. And... I mean, yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation as well.